Software has changed the way that the world functions, and the rapid pace of change has made it difficult to know how to navigate the new world. Knowledge workers who want to keep advancing in their careers develop a strategy of continuous learning in order to adapt to these changes. O'Reilly Media has existed for almost 40 years, providing resources for the technical consumer. As O'Reilly has expanded the product line from books to conferences to online learning, the business has grown slowly but steadily. That business trajectory stands in contrast to many of the software companies that are financially structured to either grow rapidly or die. Today, O'Reilly has a large impact on the software ecosystem. Software professionals congregate at O'Reilly conferences. Enterprises pay O'Reilly to educate their employees. And O'Reilly continues to grow into new product lines, recently acquiring the interactive learning platform Catacoda, which can be used to learn about Kubernetes and other popular technologies. In a previous episode, we discussed Tim O'Reilly's book, What's the Future? In today's show, Tim returns to the show to discuss his experience building O'Reilly and how his business philosophy contrasts with much of the assumed wisdom of software company building. We have partnered with SafeGraph for the SafeGraph Data Hackathon Challenge. We are giving away $4,000 in cash prizes, as well as SE Daily and SafeGraph Swag. SafeGraph is a geospatial data company which curates a data set of more than 6 million points of interest. I've been doing shows with SafeGraph for several years, and it's a company that intrigues me. SafeGraph has a high volume of location data, and you can build apps and data science projects with that data. If you've been looking for a creative opportunity to explore large data sets, specifically with the potential to win $4,000 in cash prizes, this is a great opportunity. The hackathon is hosted on FindCollabs, and to enter, go to findcollabs.com and sign up. And if you're planning your own hackathon, you can check out FindCollabs hackathons. Whether you're running an internal hackathon for your company or you're running an open hackathon so that users can try out your product, FindCollabs Hackathons is a tool for people to build projects and collaborate with each other. It's a company that I started to allow people to find collaborators for their software projects, and our hackathon product allows you to organize your hackathon participants to make your hackathon as productive as possible. You can check it out at findcollabs.com. Tim O'Reilly, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Glad to be here. The last time we spoke, you were thinking about how to capture the opportunity of upskilling. And this was in the context of upskilling both low-skilled workers and high-skilled workers, people who are already in technology, for example. And there are many ways to be upskilled. There's books and videos and mentorship and conferences. Is there a single best way? Is there an ideal curriculum through which an individual can be upskilled? You know, I don't really think about it necessarily through the lens of curriculum. In a lot of ways, what we really have to start to do is to think about what technology makes possible in learning. How do we learn things today or how do we gain skills? How does technology upskill us? I was invited uh, recently to keynote at a conference called EdCrunch in Moscow. So I spent some time thinking about how I would introduce this story. And I, 
I started with this wonderful New York Times magazine article about the knowledge of the streets and monuments of London, which is generally considered one of the most difficult exams in the world. People study three years. You know, literally, you must become a human GPS in order to pass the exam. The exam is a, a half day where they throw you, you're at this corner and you have to go to this place, recite the turn-by-turn directions that you would use to get there at this time of day. Uh, you know, and, and people literally spend years on motorcycles, on foot, on bicycles, walking the streets of London, memorizing every, every turn. And so I asked this audience, I said, you know, if you wanted to accelerate the process of people learning to get around in London, is the answer better training for how to master the knowledge? And the answer, no, today we actually have a device that we outsource that knowledge to. And I use the example, I just arrived in Moscow for the first time. I have um, very quickly able to orient myself, get anywhere. And the, the critical point is that even though I originally used the GPS to get around pretty quickly, I could find my way back to all these places that I wanted to go. And so it is a kind of, it's actually something, you know, but I was originally a classicist and in learning Latin or Greek, you use something that's called a trot. And a trot is actually a parallel, a parallel translation of this classical text. You know, in fact, this, uh, the Loeb classics out of Oxford University is on one side is Greek, on the other page is the facing page is the English. And you can basically refer back and go, okay, how does all this work? And eventually you kind of learn to do without that aid. Now, a lot of people think that the GPS trains people to f not learn their way around. And, and you can do that. You can become, can ignore things or become less skilled. But I, I think if you use it correctly, it can be a great aid for helping you be upskilled. So the question I posed, you know, using that analogy of Google Maps, I said, what is the analogous technology for uh, software developers. And the state of the art in what a software engineer has had access to, to have that onboarding or education tool or guidance tool that coincidentally also gives you education, over time that's gone from a book to perhaps a website to maybe a conference. There's a variety of tools the state of the art today, you could argue, is a guided learning process that to some extent synthesizes the previous pieces of technology we have, and to some extent is completely new. So, for example, there is an online learning platform that you acquired recently called Katacoda. Can you explain the value of Katacoda and how it compares to this GPS analogy that you've just drawn? Well, let me actually back up a little bit because I don't actually think that Katacoda per se is analogous to GPS. For a software engineer, what's analogous to Google Maps is most likely GitHub. You know, if you think about it, you know, when you say, I want to do this thing, which is the equivalent of I want to get from point A to point B, you know, the critical knowledge is actually encoded by somebody into a software library, perhaps, or some reusable piece of code. And that's the equivalent of just follow the directions. 
you know, it's like, you know, I want to do this, uh, you know, this mathematical function. Oh, you know, load NumPy, you know, and you don't actually have to know the algorithm anymore. You just have to know which function to call. You know, as I said, I, I spent some time thinking about this analogy. And then, so then I said, well, well what role do we play at O'Reilly? Because what we used to do is a little bit like teaching people the knowledge. You know, as you said, a book, a conference, a video. So pursuing this analogy, I started thinking a little bit about comment that was made to me by, of all people, an incarcerated person at San Quentin. He was in a coding program called The Last Mile. And uh, he was about to get out and he said, you know, I, I, I want to do a startup. You know, we, basically, The Last Mile is a, teaches uh, incarcerated people to code. And I, I came in to give a talk to them. And he said, you know, this all, I used to work in Fisherman's Wharf and these people, they can go anywhere. And there's people who can take them anywhere they want to go, but they don't know where to go. And in a lot of ways, that's the analogy to what we do at O'Reilly today. It's much more helping people understand. I mean, well, again, we still are, actually, there's a lot of complexities in this analogy and I'm still trying to think it through. But let me just give you a great example. You know, many times the question isn't, you know, how do I get to a particular place? It's, I want to get to a kind of place. So again, using this GPS analogy, I just came back from a holiday at a wonderful uh, resort in the south coast of Mexico called uh, Playa Viva. And I would never have known to say, you know, how do I get to Playa Viva? What my wife did was she said, we want to have a you know, she actually posted that on, on Facebook. She said, I want to know, you know, we're trying to put together an event for about 30 people. We're looking for a small place that we can take over. You know, she kind of put out some general ideas and did this sort of social search and somebody pointed to this thing. And then we go to TripAdvisor, you know, and TripAdvisor, we look at this thing, it's got something like 4,500 reviews and 4,400 of them are five-star reviews. <laughs> We've never seen anything like it. And we go, oh, well, that's clearly our place, you know, and I reach out to the guy and we end up you know, having a marvelous time. But there's a lot of things where you go, I want to do something like this. And so there's this big range of ways that you have to, Think about this problem of, I want to do this thing, how do I do it? And what we're trying to build at O'Reilly is a range of answers to that question. Because sometimes you know exactly what you want to do, you know, but you don't know how to, how to do it. In which case, we're really doing a lot more work on the search function in our online platform so that we can just get to answers, for example. You know, so you say, I want to do this task. And we, again, we've done this in books before. You know, we had this, you know, the cookbooks uh, series, the Perl cookbook or the Python cookbook, the PHP cookbook or whatever, the, you know, where it's like, I want to do this task. How do I do it? And it's a one or two page quick uh, explanation. We had uh, our hacks books, which were slightly bigger, more complicated tasks. Way back in 1992, I wrote a book called Unix Power Tools that was, you know, how do I do this thing? And they're sort of small answers. And, and now we're algorithmically starting to surface that stuff. So you can ask those specific questions, you know. So anyway, the things that I'm thinking about are, okay, so there's a set of questions which range from the very general where you want, you know, you might, you may want advice. And so there, hey, wait, we have a case study, you know, in our online platform where somebody says, uh, you know, I want to introduce Agile into government. Has anybody else ever done this? You know, and you go, yeah, 
and we, we can point them to uh, somebody, uh, you know, from uh, the United States Digital Service or uh, somewhere else or, 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 you know, saying, hey, yeah, we did agile in government. Here's how, you know, so that's a high level request, a little bit like I want to find a resort that, that's kind of like this. And then other times it's all the way down to, you know, how do I write this particular regular expression or how would I do gradient descent, you know, or what's a hyperparameter in AI and how do I set them? You know, there's very specific questions and there's very general questions. And, and I think what we've tried to do, which is I think very different from many other online learning platforms, is we haven't basically said our fundamental job is to take you on this sort of guided tour of some, we're going to take you from A to, you know, C or D or E or F. We're going to basically do some of that. You know, we do have courses. We do have live online trainings that say, hey, you want to do this thing, you know, steps, here's the step-by-step stuff, work along with me. But we also have this playground that is a lot more like you know, GPS or the web, where you're basically able to ask general questions, get answers, and then dig deeper. And so it's really much more self-directed. So we're trying to put our users in the position of the user of Google Maps, rather than saying, we're going to teach you to be a London black cabbie. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying that there already exists a embarrassment of riches when it comes to ways to learn to do something, to learn to do something particular. But not just ways to learn to do something, ways to do something. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's an important distinction because in many ways you learn by doing. And that's something that we've always been been very much at the heart of who we are as a company. You know, back in the early days, we were a documentation consulting company. Then we were a book publisher. Then we were, you know, a conference company, an online company. But all of what we were trying to do was say, hey, there's people who know how to do something and you want to do it too. So we're going to show you how to do it. And that is sort of a slightly different emphasis when you come from documenting a task than it is from when you're saying, well, you don't know anything about this, so we're going to teach you to be a software developer, And are for you example. S- are you saying that the vision is now you want to help people to understand how to explore the landscape and how to consider new things? Oh, absolutely. That's always been part of it. But, you know, if you think back to the early days of O'Reilly, it was, you know, there were a few people you know, with this new technology and very few people knew how to do it. You know, we would sort of learn it and we'd write it down and other people were kind of following along and it's still a lot that way. But we built this mental model of what online learning is about, which I think has, has really been shaped too much by things like coding boot camps. And, you know, here's people who don't want to know, don't know how to code and we're going to teach them, you know, from, from ground zero. Whereas an awful lot of the cutting edge of our industry is people who already know enough to get their... You know, they know how to drive, you know, they just don't know where they want to get, how to get to a particular place that they want to go to. So you asked about Katakoda. The reason why we bought Katakoda is because it really fits squarely into this vision. Because one of the things that is unique about Katakoda is it's not just, yes, you can build these 
learning paths and learning environments where you're able to say, hey, you want to do this thing? You know, we're going to teach you about uh, how to do this thing with Kubernetes. And so go through this, uh, this scenario. Uh, you know, the, the, first of all, there is that, that idea that Katakota has of what they call scenarios is very much like what we did in, in, in our you know, cookbooks years ago. You know, in fact, you know, when we rolled out Katakota on the platform, we actually converted a bunch of, of material from some of our cookbooks and just put it into Katakota. Oh, I should explain what Katakota is. It's, it's, a little, it's, it's very similar in many ways to Jupyter Notebooks, but it has a broader scope of, of things that you can do in it. And the, the environment's more integrated, but it's basically, it's effectively a, a description of a process with embedded code that you can execute. And here's the thing that got me super excited about it. I, I think about myself as, as you know, I, I don't code on a, even a monthly basis anymore. You know, I mean, I code occasionally, you know, and you forget things, you know, so I think about uh, when I when I got married in 2015, I built a wedding website. You know, I, I, I immediately went, well, how, how do I do that? I go, okay, let me look. There's a bunch on GitHub, right? So I downloaded one on GitHub. Oh, they're using Jenkins, you know? And I kind of have to figure out a bunch of things about, I've never used Jenkins before, but it's pretty straightforward. And, you know, there's some documentation in the in the site and I can, and it's, it's sort of code that I can look at and I can modify. And I go, yeah, I just take out their image and put in my image and take out their words and put in my words and, you know, do a bunch stuff. Uh, but there were a bunch of things that, you know, I went back, you know, a month later and I wanted to change something and I had forgotten it all. And I had to go back and look at the documentation again. And, you know, <laughs> and I said, you know, so when Katakota came along, I thought about, wow, there's this whole world of occasional tasks, for example, when you think of, about a cor our corporate customers. Now, our, our online platform used a lot by by corporate customers. You think about something like, you know, somebody saying, well, we use this particular set of libraries. They go, they're onboarding new people. You know, we use this particular coding environment. Uh, you know, here's our, our policies and procedures. And now you imagine building that in an environment where you can actually execute it. You know, because that integration of documentation and executable code is super interesting. Mm -hmm. And I've actually been interested in this idea for decades, literally. Uh, I, I think that one of the things that's most interesting in software is this, in some sense, the moving and shifting of the boundaries between what the computer does and what the human does. And back, I guess it was 1998. Okay, so that's, you know, 20s. One years ago, I wrote this, uh, uh, I started writing, and actually it was 1998 and then up to about 2003. I think that, that actually, you know, I think the piece I'm thinking of I wrote in 2003, it was called Hardware, Software, and Infoware. And it was really around this idea that uh, in the earliest days of computing, the human machine interface was very close to the metal. You know, there were guys back in the early days who literally programmed by flicking, flipping switches on the front of a machine, right? You know, it's like literally they were setting bits. And then when I started, my very first manual I ever wrote was an assembly language programming manual. You know, it's like move this data into this register. And then, you know, you start to have more and more high-level high languages. And then you get all the way up. And the, the time I wrote this piece, it was, it was, I was really spent a bunch of time in the late 90s and early aughts thinking about why scripting languages were st starting to take off. These, these things with late binding, Perl, Python, uh, some others that are no longer really around that much like Tickle. And a lot of, and there was this great line from this guy, Hassan Schroeder, who was Sun's first webmaster. He said, Perl is the duct tape of the internet. 
And I thought about that, you know, this sort of occasional programming, you know, so it's like you, you go to a conference and, you know, they use duct tape to put the wire, to hold the wires down because guess what? They're not going to be there tomorrow. You know, and there was this idea that this, the interface had become much more dynamic. And there was this other aspect about it that I thought was really interesting, which was uh, I started thinking about HTML as a real breakthrough. And I did this contrast between, say, Microsoft Word, which was sort of state-of-the-art, you know, PC software at the time, and this new thing, the web, which was really starting to take off. And I said, look, in, you know, an application like Microsoft Word, you have little bits of human speech embedded in software code. You know, there's menus, there's prompts, and basically somebody has, has sort of put in the human speech into a program. Now look at how HTML reverses the paradigm. You actually, with, with CGI, you know, which was the original way that you had dynamic content in, in a web page, what we're doing is we're actually embedding programs and programmed actions into a human document web page. You click on that link and it fires up a program. You know, we've inverted the, the paradigm. And I, I think if you look at the way that we're continuing to evolve software, we are increasingly bringing it closer and closer to where people are effectively going to be programmed. Well, again, they're not even programming. They're basically, but they are calling stored procedures. And if you can see the continuity between a programmer saying, load this library and then execute this function, and you go, this really, we're, we're basically at a higher and higher level loading more and more code and then you kind of think about the end user who says, okay, Google, the point is, I think we will get to a point where we have speech interfaces that really work pretty well. In fact, they already do work pretty darn well for a lot of things. There's things that you, you know, you used to have to enter commands and now you can just talk. So I guess what I'm saying is that, you know, well, the guiding idea that we're playing with at O'Reilly, or one of the guiding ideas, is this idea of the continuum of the human-machine interface and the ability to help people to understand how to use the computer to help them with a task or to accomplish a task, all along that continuum. And I think a lot of the guiding metaphor that many people use when they think about online training is a little bit like we're going to accelerate the London Black Cabbie, you know, getting the, the knowledge when what we're trying to do is say, no, no, we're going to build better and better interfaces where people can actually do things and have to say less, do less, explain less, learn less in order to get the computer to, to jump through hoops. And the reason why you want to do that is the more you can make easy, the more you can reserve your actual you know, learning and hard brain power for things that are now hard. I always loved the, one of the Pearl sayings back in the, you know, the, the 90s that I always loved was uh, the aim of Pearl is to make easy things easy and hard things possible. And that's a lot of what we try to do. We try to make easy things easy and hard things possible. So out of that far cutting edge, you know, you really may have to learn radically new skills. You know, and when, when people get a book like Aurelien Guerin's wonderful, you know, book on TensorFlow and Scikit-Learn, he's got this incredible pedagogy for explaining how you to wrap your head around deep learning. 
because, hey, this is new, hard stuff. But there's a lot of things where you just kind of go, no, actually, I don't, I don't actually need to understand if you're a particular type of programmer, you may just be, all you need to know is which function do I call? So one thing I like about talking to you is most of what you talk about is this high-level abstract magic of computing, the almost religious aspect of what is so cool about computing. But together with that collection of words that comes out of your mouth that is very high-level and abstract, you have a history of making incredibly smart tactical decisions in how you have built the business. And I think there are people who make very good tactical decisions in building their businesses, but may not have a big high-level abstract view of the the majestic nature of computing. And there are people who have very high-level views of the majestic nature of computing who may not be so good at making tactical decisions. You seem to have done a good job of finding a marriage there. And in particular, in the, the nuanced financial and just tactical business discipline you've taken to your business. We talked about this a lot in the last episode where you just said that O'Reilly is not a financialized company in the sense that your products included in that set of products is not a stock ticker symbol. It is not a price of a stock. And with that in mind, I'd like to know a little bit more about how you think about the mechanics and the selection of an acquisition like this. Because the vision that you just laid out, it's very beautiful. It's also very broad. There's a lot of companies you could choose from in selecting something to acquire that might fit as a puzzle piece snugly into the portfolio of O'Reilly. So can you just give me a little bit more light on the the lower level aspects of why you made this particular acquisition? Well, first off, there aren't a lot of companies that, a lot of technologies that do what Katakoda does. This Jupyter Notebooks and this Katakoda, in our opinion, you know, uh, and both, we, we support both in the platform. We've been fascinated with Jupyter for years. We actually ran a Jupyter uh, conference for a couple of years. And so w- when we encountered Katakoda, what we found so fascinating about it was just how easy it is to integrate. Jupyter, it's still a little, you know, it's like if you look at the Jupyter in- integration in our platform, you know, there are Jupyter notebooks associated with, with, you know, with some of the books where the code is all executable, but you go into this different environment and... Katakoda's got a lot in common with this thing that I've been in love with since the early days of the web, which is this sort of easy back and forth between code and explanation of the code. And it's just, I think it's an environment that, and it also, in addition, it it makes it easy to do things like, uh, you know, shell programming, to do a lot of the things that are in the sort sort of system administration, network administration, security area, and not just you know, data science and, you know, things that are data heavy that where Jupyter excels, although you can do that as well. So it just really increased our interactive capabilities. And I think the thing that we're, we're doing that's, we are doing a lot that is in just the learning space, but I think we're really also seeing it as a way of exploring how do we turn the platform into something that just helps people do their work. Because that's always been our goal, to be kind of a, a knowledge utility. You know, you use Google every day, you use GitHub every day, uh, and how, you know, how we use O'Reilly every day. And we think that 
there's a lot of things that we do where you go, okay, I'm going to set aside some time for learning a new skill. But actually, if we look at the usage patterns that we already have of the way people consume our, our content on the platform, a lot of it's like they're looking for an answer to a problem. You know, they got their coding environment in one window and they've got O'Reilly in another window because they're looking for answers to, for the, what are they going to type on the next line? They're not looking, you know, they're not sitting there going, I'm trying to learn how to program. They're saying, I'm actually trying to build this machine learning model and I'm not quite sure how to set that next parameter, you know, or I'm not quite sure what, uh, you know, how to optimize this or what does my data pipeline look like? Or they're trying to get very specific answers. So the other thing I guess that we do, we obviously have this environment where we've built a marketplace you know, I mean, that's the other thing that's really critical about the O'Reilly online platform. We don't produce all the content. And so we're always looking for core capabilities that we can open up to our marketplace partners, because that allows us to get, you know, useful content in areas that we, we don't really do. You know, like we're not, we've never been a certification company, but Pearson's one of our partner, partners. And guess what? They do, you know, all the certifications. You know? <laughs> so can we give them better tooling to build better content that's more useful for our users. So we did that when we introduced live online training. We said, okay, we put together this package of tools. This allows you to actually have live synchronous training. We opened it up to partners on the platform. So we would have you know, training in areas that we ourselves didn't want to do. And now as we're looking at these tools for more interactive not just uh, say interactive learning, but interactive doing, supported doing, we're basically, we wanted to have it be part of the capabilities of the platform so that we can say to our partners, this is something you can use to, to build you know, to build on. And I said, you know, our roots as a documentation company, we're really on some ways coming full circle because that was the thing that I think distinguished O'Reilly books from the very beginning was that we were a documentation company, whereas other people were like, hey, we're writing a book about, I mean, again, people were writing books about, about software programs and they were sort of documenting, you know, this is how Microsoft Excel works or whatever. And, you know, here's, and we were like, you want to get on the internet, here's how you do it. It's like, it was focused on the thing you want to do. So it was always sort of doing first. Mm -hmm. And you want to put up a web page. Here's how you do it. Oh, wait, you have to, you know, again, I think back on when we did that first book on the internet, the whole internet user's guide and catalog in 1992. And then everybody was doing books on, on the internet. And what do we do? We, we had a book about, well, how do you set up a web server? How do you set up your DNS? You know, how do you, you know, it was like, it was sort of driven by the fact that, well, if you want to have a website, well, here are the things that you have to know about. You have to be able to set up a database. You have to be able to set up. So it driven by a sense of what people were trying to accomplish. When, not to change the subject too dramatically, but you started the company I believe 37 years ago at this uh, point. It depends how you count. I started my, you know, in partnership with another guy, we started a documentation company. It would have been in 1978. And then the company, we, we were in partnership for four or five, five years. We broke up that partnership in 83. And that's when O'Reilly Media Proper was founded. So you can, you can either say... So 42. 40, 40, 40, yeah, yeah. Something <laughs> yeah. like that. Anyway, when you started... O'Reilly, or how long did it take you to start to have a vision for how the company would grow into other markets? Or did you always have that from the beginning? When did it shift from being kind of the mere 
idea of a documentation company to something where you saw the opportunity for something bigger? I guess it was the first piece I wrote that was, you know, was was both my first piece of advocacy out there on, was called uh, Documentation and the Future of Unix. And this would have been 1984. So 35 years ago, I guess. And it was basically uh, something that I think I've always been good at, which was just a piece of pattern recognition, which was that I recognized that something was changing about the software industry and that, that at Unix, eventually Linux and the internet, were changing the rules. And, you know, before that point, and again, this is ancient history for many of your listeners. Every company made their own computer with its own operating system. And, you know, the PC was a bit of a revolution in that there was a standard architecture and a single dominant. But, you know, when I started, that wasn't even really happening. So it was like it was Digital Equipment Corporation and Prime Computer and HP. And, and what I saw with the early adoption of Unix was like, wow, all these people are, they still have different hardware. We had Sun and I was working for a company called MassComp and uh, you know Prime and Data General, whatever. And they were all starting to have, well, we're going to compete on the basis of our hardware, but we're all going to use Unix, or at least it'll be an option on our platforms. And I said, oh, and one of the things I recognized there was that, well, if it was only one version of the software, then there would be this sort of idea for reusable documentation. So I was sort of uh, making the case that, well, we could, we could just take, first of all, there was a lot of this stuff at, at Unix had come out of a research environment, so there really wasn't much documentation. And I still think of early books like, you know, Said Knock. You know, the only documentation on Said Knock was uh, a research paper out of Bell Labs. You know, it was like six or seven pages where they were kind of saying, hey, we wrote this cool program, but it really wasn't anything you would, and then it was a man page, whatever. And we went, wow, we can really improve on that. You know, when the X window system came out in 1988, it was like, wow, this is a demonstration project that they want people to build on. Documentation is pretty lousy. We can make it better. And what, what I recognized was that all of these companies were in parallel trying to do the same thing, which was, well, we have to improve this uh, crappy documentation for, you know, this free software we're adopting. And we basically said, well, you could do it yourself or you could just get it from us. Mm. And we actually had a, it was a breakthrough, I think, when it was sort of, there was some version of the X window system. I don't remember which one, but it was an X consortium meeting. And it, you know, it was, it, MIT had started the, you know, the, something called the MIT X consortium. And Bob Scheifler was the director. And at some meeting, somebody said, well, what are we all, what are we going to do about documentation? And Scheifler said, don't worry about it. O'Reilly will do something. <laughs> you know? And it was so like, we literally put, all these documentation departments out of business because we had realized that once all the companies were using the same software, we could produce commercial books that would fill the void. And the thing that's sort of interesting, if you look at the long arc of, of the last 30 years, there was this sort of golden age for commodity software where there were a lot of publishers producing you know, books and documentation for it and, and, and the vendors didn't have to do that much. Then, of course, the, you know, the way the, the publishing market evolved, consolidation and various other things, uh, that became less true. And you know, companies have ended up having to do much more of their own documentation again. Part of what we've understood is, in particular, as people are working with more and more fragmented environments, the, you know, the industry has, has really changed. You know, we first saw this around JavaScript frameworks because there were so many of them. It was this, just this jungle of of possibilities. 
and you might be at one company and you're using Django, you're another company using React. So the challenges of having a sort of a single path through that jungle Mm. became much greater. And so every company was having to roll their own again. Again, I think our our marketplace approach has really helped with that because it makes it possible to have much more documentation. We allow our corporate customers can even upload their own documentation into the platform. Uh, There's various ways that we have tried to deal with that. But I think that it's still a long way to go. Anyway, the the point, you know, in response to your question is I think the thing that we've always been pretty good at is we look at these big patterns in the history of the computer industry and we ask ourselves, we try to sit back and we try to say, where's this going? You know, and I wrote about this in my book, WTF. How do you do pattern recognition on the present in order to predict the future? And it's not really that you're predicting the future. It's that you're identifying vectors that are adding up to take you somewhere. And then you're looking for signs that one vector or another is being reinforced. So that when I wrote that first piece on documentation in the future of Unix, it was the beginning of noticing something and then, you know, noticing that Linux was taking off and, you know, free software of all kinds was taking off. And, you know, so you start seeing these vectors start to add up and you start going, okay, we're going to pile onto that. And, you know, right now we're in this sort of transformation that's around machine learning becoming everyday technology and how that changes the software development life cycle, the software development process. Peter Norvig gave a great talk about this at our first AI conference, which I, whenever people ask me, well, what should I look at? We have that talk in our platform and it's, it's just, you know, it's like, hey, how does this change programming? And companies that are trying to adopt machine learning, they have to develop a whole new set of skills again. And, and those are skills that are really organizational skills. It's not just at the level of, well, you need to have, have your developers learn about TensorFlow or PyTorch. It's also that you actually have to understand where's our data going to be? Who collects it? Who curates it? How do we clean it? What kind of people do we need uh, to build a data pipeline into these processes? And that's stuff that's more easily digested in conference format in many cases, I think. Yeah, the, orga- it, the organizational touchy-feely side of things. It is, but but again, you know, you have to have the big picture in order to know how do you give people context? There's this great quote from this guy, Edwin Schlossberg, that I've always uh, loved and tried to live by. He said, the skill of writing is to provide a context in which other people can think. And so often people go astray because they don't, they don't take the time to get the big picture. And that's one of the things that we've always tried to do in O'Reilly books, it, which is, you know, to have an introduction. You know, my working theory when I first sort of developed a lot of our book formats was that there's really two kinds of knowledge in those books. And one is this big picture. How does this thing work? How do all the pieces fit together? And then there's very specific knowledge, which is, well, what function do I call or or what command do I issue? And that you wanted to give people enough context pretty quickly because many of our users are in a hurry that they could then drop in anywhere later and they would know enough uh, to be able to, you know, they'd be oriented. So it's kind of like a little bit like when you go to a new city, you know, do you, how do you get 
a big picture of this is the area where there's great restaurants. You know, this is where uh, the best shopping is. This is where, oh my God, this museum is amazing or, you know, whatever it might be that you're interested in. This is how you get out and, and uh, there's a great park. So you have that, that level of orientation and then you kind of like, well, how do I get there? What do I do when I get there? What are the opening hours? You know, so there's all these analogies there that you can start to say, well, how do those play out in the way people learn and do things online? Your company started as a media company i mean well not really we started as a documentation company we renamed the company o'reilly media it was originally o'reilly and associates because we were literally a band of consultants we renamed o'reilly media but documentation is kind of whatever yeah media when people think of media they often think of advertising and sure yeah we've always been okay i I just meant in the sense that eventually you evolved into a technology company where you had to build technology that's correct yeah Tell me about crossing the chasm from being a publisher of content to that plus more of a platform. That's a, been a big challenge for us. And I think that it, we were held back for a number of years by the fact that it was a joint venture. You know, our online platform, we, had a joint, we started it in 2001. And we invited our biggest competitor at the time, Pearson Technology Group, in as a partner. And so it was set up as a sort of a separate company. And we didn't uh, take full control of it back till 2014. We really should have done it much sooner because, you know, any, any joint venture, you're always... Wait, what of, was it originally called? It was called Safari Books Online. Safari Books Online. Okay, so that was with you and Pearson. Yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh, that must have been really hard to unwind. Yeah, it was. And, you know, if we could have done it few years earlier, it would have been much better, but it was just meant that we was harder to be hands-on with the platform because we had these people who were reporting into both companies. They were, it was a separate company. Once we took control of it again, we kind of had to, you know, really get in there and start seeing what was going on. And, and we went through a couple of false starts, but then we, we kind of, I think we, we really started to hit our stride. The thing that, you know, this is the other side of what I'm spending a lot of time on apart from things like really trying to understand how we, sh- we we build around the future of learning. But the other is, what does it mean to be a platform? And if you look at a lot of the things I've been writing publicly, like in uh, the pieces I've written in Quartz, they're really about what's wrong with the idea that it seems to be the Silicon Valley playbook today, which is winner takes all. Because if you really want to have a platform, it's got to be good for the people who use it. And there was this great uh, line, uh, which uh, Ben Thompson, who writes this great newsletter called Strathecary, calls the Bill Gates line. He has a wonderful post. It's a conversation between Bill Gates and Chamath uh, Palahapitiya, who was the head of so-called Facebook platform. And Bill apparently said to him, that's not a platform. A platform is when the people who use it get more out of it than you do. Now, it's funny to have, have Bill be the one saying that, but I, I, you know, wisdom may have come because, of course, Microsoft, uh, that was true originally, but then Microsoft started to take too much out of the platform and, and that led to lots of problems. But that is, in fact, you know, the key idea. And I've been writing about the way that it looks to me you know, by looking at the financial, Google's financials and so on, that they're taking more and more of the value out of the web and it's becoming less vibrant as a platform. And uh, they've been, there was this sweet spot where they were really allocating value very fairly to lots and lots of people. And now they're allocating more and more of the value to themselves, just like Microsoft did on the PC. 
and Apple's doing the same thing in the in the App Store. And I've really been working very hard to understand how we don't do that at O'Reilly. You know, it's very easy to give yourself privileged access. Very easy to say, oh, wow, we just introduced this new feature. Wow, we're taking more of the pie. This is great. There's different kinds of, of, of and again, you know, there's diff, different terminology here. You know, Ben would probably disagree with me on, on uh, actually, or maybe I'm, I'm thinking about, I may be mixing up whether, anyways, maybe somebody else. But anyway, this idea of platforms okay. versus- Ben Thompson is a stand-in for every tech commentator. Yeah, yeah right, right. Platforms versus aggregators and so on. But, you know, there are people who are pure enablers. You know, you think about somebody like Stripe. You know, they don't, they don't control anything. They don't, you know, they've just provided some infrastructure level or Twilio or whatever. You know, whereas someone like Google or Facebook or Amazon, whether you call them an aggregator or a platform, they're really in the position to decide who gets what and why, which is they control the economy of uh, their platform. And there's a real temptation to cheat. You know, Microsoft did it on the PC. You know, they gave themselves privileged APIs. They also were there saying, well, great, you know, wow, there's these great applications. We'll, we'll do those too. And then they privileged their own applications. And now you see the same thing with Google. There's various kinds of, of content that really are commodities, you know, where you kind of go, okay, everybody's building on, you know, whether data that's provided by the U.S. government, well, Google or stock data, whatever, it's just public, public data, and that's fair. But then there are things like, you know, say TripAdvisor, which spent, 15 years sort of building up this database of customer comments. And then Google says, well, we, we've got to do that. We're going to actually, we think, you know, we don't want to pay these guys this way. We can just, we'll just use our platform position to put our content first and our reviews first. And I kind of think that's very much the Microsoft play. So anyway, back to O'Reilly, we do have a privileged position because we're both the platform for our online learning platform and we're a participant in it. So I still, it makes me smile all the time. It was, must have been, two and a half years ago now, whatever, whenever we introduced our live online training, Laura Baldwin, our president, who really runs the company day to day, calls a, an emergency meeting of our exec team. She says, we have a real problem. We, you know, we introduced live online training and it's been so successful that Pearson's revenue is going to fall by half in the next month. <laughs> you know, this is a problem. You know, it wasn't like, wow, we just took, you know, you know, we introduced this new feature. First of all, we when we introduced it, we socialized it to all our, to our partners. But sorry, this was when Pearson was still a part of it? No, no, Pearson still is a part of it. They're just, they're not a, an owner now. Oh, okay. But they're still on the platform as are hundreds of other publishers. Oh, I of see. Content. So, so your we content really are a so platform. But we introduced this new feature, but we went all in on it. We introduced 100 live online trainings and Pearson introduced 10, you know? And so it was such a successful new feature that it's, it's sort of, the revenue is allocated among publishers in proportion to usage. Mm -hmm. And we were just, it's actually usage times price this is a somewhat complicated algorithm for it. But point was, we sucked a huge amount of value out of the platform. And what we ended up doing was radically reducing the price of our online trainings until the other people on the platform could catch up. Hmm. Because our goal wasn't to like take the value, it was to keep them producing value. Hmm. You know, and I've been thinking a lot about this idea of two-sided markets. 
and maybe some of this actually, I started thinking about this a lot with Uber and Lyft and, and some of the these online matching marketplaces where you, you got to attract drivers, you got to drive passengers. And that was the first piece I wrote uh, for courts was a critique of Reed Hoffman's blitzscaling. Because there was so much capital, they were able to say, oh, we're just going to optimize for the passenger side and we're going to screw the drivers. And they treated the drivers as sort of a fungible resource. In fact, if, the, if capital had been less scarce, we might have get a, got a, di- a different balance of who gets what and why, you know, which is that fundamental question of economics. You know, you go, okay, well, we're going to have to pay this much to the drivers, we're going to have to pay this much to the passengers. And, and in a way, I think we've forgotten that a platform thrives when its suppliers thrive. Yeah. So at O'Reilly, we're spending a lot of time. So like when we introduce a new feature like Catacota, how do we get other people on board? How can they use it? How do we teach them to create content in areas that we're not going to do it? I think, you know, most of the platforms I see out there, they're like, they maybe they start by bootstrapping some content from outside providers. And then they're like, well, actually, you know, this is a really lucrative area. We should do this ourselves. I think our fundamental commitment to this as a platform play I think is something very distinctive. Coming back to the idea of your non-financialized company, it is hard to compete for top talent if you are not one of these financialized companies because a lot of the best talent can go to a place like Airbnb or Stripe and get not only great cash positions, but can get the lottery tickets that can mean so much money in a financialized company. And as you have shifted to becoming more and more of a technology platform, in some ways, your growth is going to be bottlenecked by how many good, strong engineers you can get, or I guess the strategic leadership. So how do you reconcile that competition for talent with the financialized companies? Well, I think that I won't deny that it's a serious challenge. We're competing with companies that have effectively have a currency that is valued. Super money. Super money, yes. What I've called super money. First off, idealism goes a long way. You know, there are people who are sick and tired of working for companies that they don't feel good about. But also, I think there's also a bit of fatigue at the lottery nature of this thing. Yes, there are companies, there are definitely companies where you can get a guaranteed huge return. Amazon will pay you in stock and you, you know it's likely to keep paying off. On the other hand, if you're kind of going to a startup, that's becoming less and less because the big guys are in fact doing it wrong exactly in the way that I'm saying. They're kind of taking too much of the value. I think about some of the companies I've invested in where it was sort of like, oh yeah, you know, Amazon says, that's a really nice idea. Sell to us or we'll just do it. I think there are a lot of people who felt like they've been they've been screwed over by the venture capital model, which in which they're basically cannon fodder and chips in a in a betting in a in a casino uh, mindset. So that's part of it. The other thing that I think really helps is we have a distributed uh, work environment, so we can hire people in who are not here in Silicon Valley, where everything's so expensive, and they're they're good engineers all over, and we work a lot remotely and. We've kind of developed it. You know, so I think it's the combination of values, the combination of, of, of being a distributed company. I mean, there's no question that would we like to be able to get people more easily? Absolutely. 
But I also say, you know, my wife, uh, Jen Pocket, runs a nonprofit, Code for America, where trying to get people where there's absolutely no prospect of a, uh, you know, an exit or outcome. And uh, you still find good people. Right. Because, you know, when she was at the White House and recruiting people for the United States Digital Service, you know, these people say, well, I can, you know, make Larry and Sergey a little bit richer, or I can, I can make it possible for people to get healthcare. You know, like when you think about the healthcare sure. rescue team that came out of Google, where they're like, oh, yeah. And then they, they thought it was just going to be a, a temporary thing. And then it was sort of like, sure. whoa, you know, we are really impacting people's lives. Sure. And at Google, we're not doing that anymore. I think that's, people want to have a positive impact. And people want to make a difference. Yeah. Since we're kind of near to the end, end of our time, I, I want to go into some further flung questions because you do write a lot of editorials or not a lot but you write enough editorials to make me curious and uh, i follow your twitter the concept of publisher versus platform we've explored this a little bit but more in the context of o'reilly which is pretty tame relative to the questions faced by some of the other publisher slash platform question marks people have vastly divergent views on how sympathetic they are towards Twitter and Facebook for the kinds of content moderation and censorship issues that they have. Do you have any concise perspective for what these companies should be doing differently? Do we even have enough experience with this domain to legislate from the outside? Or we kind of do we kind of have to just give credence to Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and just assume they're doing their best? What can we actually say confidently about what they should or should not be doing? Well, I guess I would say a couple of things there. Uh, first off, the way we talk about the issue is really badly broken. This is not about free speech, ever. It's not about free speech. Because if you think about how social media works, anyone can speak, right? But what the pla- the question is not about censorship it's not about stopping somebody from saying something it's about how much do you amplify choose to amplify what they have said and chris cox who was the chief product officer at facebook i thought put it pretty well he says i think our issue is anybody can speak but we don't have a responsibility to give them a you know to you know, anybody can get on their soapbox on facebook but Uh, You know, we are not responsible for gathering their audience and we shouldn't be, you know. So what's the the, the way I think about Facebook and Twitter and Google to the extent they do this, YouTube, they are absolutely responsible for their curation. They're absolutely just like if, if, if New York Times chooses to put fake news on its front page, you go, hey. You just curated that stuff up to the to the front, and yet that is what Facebook is doing all the time: is curating stuff. You know, they're, they're, yes, they're they're individual front pages, but they're curating stuff to the front, and they they should be held accountable for that. That being said, I think they are working very hard on it. And one of the really good examples of this recently, there was a new study came out and somebody said, oh, everybody talks about how YouTube radicalizes people. Well, we just did this new scientific study and we found that, in fact, 
YouTube is is actually making people more moderate when they... And I, I reached out to Renee DeResta, who'd been one of the early people who was raising the flag on this. And she said, yeah, because they've changed what they do in response to all of the, the you know, the red flags that were going up. So they have made okay, progress. Do, we, do you ever question where are these people getting the data that they're talking about for doing these gigantic I, studies? I, like, I, I, it I, seems so questionable to me that you could actually get enough data to really say this with confidence. No, that's not true. You know, there's a, there's a very good book by Yokai Benkler and team at, at Harvard called Network Propaganda, where they were just using, you know, you, you can get public Twitter data, for example. Uh, they were studying, and that was another thing. And I you guess don't know that, what percentage is bots. Like you don't know what the denominator is. You so well, like, well. I mean, the point is, if whether it's bots or humans, you can kind of look at what what happens to it on the network. You know, it's like if it, it, does it matter to you if, if if it's a bot that got it on your front page, you know, or if, if it was from a human? That's not what they're trying to measure. They're just trying to say well, how does it propagate. No, I'm saying the bot. If they're measuring whether a bot got radicalized. Like if they're saying, oh, this this was a the before radicalization, this was after radicalization, it whether or not it's a bot matters. Well, sure, but I mean, I think I'm not sure you would even consider that a bot would be radicalized because the bot has a purpose. No, but that's the point: is how would you identify the data set for a study like this? Yeah. If you're trying to identify how humans, anyway. Yeah, I am not deep into the okay. uh, uh, different question. Sorry, not for you. Yeah, um, I, I do think that we are holding these guys' feet to the fire is important, yeah. but recognizing how much progress they have made and how much effort they've put in towards it uh, is important. Because if you contrast them with, you know, mainstream traditional media, you know. There are companies, uh, Fox is a notable <laughs> right. example, that actually has a business model right. around actually canonizing misinformation. Right. And then back to Yokai's uh, book, Network Propaganda, they literally looked at the spread of fake news and they said, look, it actually starts equally on the left and the right. On the left, mainstream media tends to tamp down rumors. You know, they, they, start, they start to spread. And then at some point, they, you know, mainstream media sort of doesn't kind of raise them to the top. On the right, it gets up to the top and Fox treats it as, as real news. And that's the big difference. Right. And so here's a company that whose business model is to spread misinformation. And I guess that's always been true. You know, you think back, uh, William Randolph Hearst, you know, you, you know, in the Spanish-American war, you want a war, I'll give you a war. But we are in an era of yellow journalism. And I think that there's a mainstream media conspiracy to blame tech. I agree. And that we need to, to basically not buy that mm. because the tech companies are doing more than any of the mainstream media companies to actually fight this. And the mainstream media companies are still like, they're, they're like, hey, man, they're eager for their clicks. So they'll do clickbait headlines even at the best you know, media. Now, that being said, there is this issue that the, you know, this fundamental, you know, Achilles heel of the social media engagement model, that it tends to reward sensationalism. It's a little bit, there is a problem that, you know, companies like Facebook are trying to moderate uh, content that they are also incentivizing. And that's a serious problem. I completely agreed. Love your summarization there. There was the case of Cloudflare making a decision to shut down a white supremacist site that was hosted on Cloudflare servers. Do you think hosting companies should be forced to 
be treated as content moderation platforms? Should they be total open blank platforms? How should they answer these questions? You know, I, I think, again, this goes back to, I think a lot of people don't really understand the concept of censorship. Censorship is something that a government can do. Censorship is something that someone in power does. If somebody says, look, I don't want your business because I don't appreciate your values, I think that's a perfectly reasonable consumer decision. You know, it's no different than somebody saying, now again, it's sort of tough because there are, there are cases where government intervenes. You know, says, for example, these are protected classes. You can't discriminate on the basis of race. You can't discriminate on the basis of, of sexual orientation. You can't discriminate, you know, that's, but again, that's, that's the government, which is something that expresses our collective will making that determination. And that's where, you know, why, you know, Mark was saying, hey, we would really like the government to give us more guidance on some of these things. But in the absence of that guidance, there's no reason why Facebook, for example, you know, and, and my personal advice to Mark, you know, was, look, you know, you got to stop pretending that this is some kind of vast democracy where your users get to decide and this free speech. It's like, you're a king. Your job is to be a good king. You know, and the best thing, you know, it didn't, you know, didn't go anywhere. But I think if if he had values around like, no, there's a bunch of stuff that I really don't believe. You know, it's like, hey, if Rupert Murdoch can say, I don't believe in climate change and I'm going to basically not cover any of it and I'm going to. You know, nobody talks about that as like, oh, my God, how is it that Fox is censoring any news about climate change or deny and amplifying climate denial? And they're not having their feet held to the fire. That's their because everybody says, well, that's their their right as a media company. You know, so why would it be any different if Facebook said, no, actually, we're taking a stand on some issues. And I, I think that they're a little bit lily livered hiding behind the free speech idea. And I love it when somebody says, no, we're, we, we're not going to host a white supremacist site. We're not going to host hateful content. You know, we are going to actually take action. I think we need more of that, not less of it. And then, of course, if there are, you know, where you get into issues is when companies are in a position of great power, when somebody has a monopoly. But I, I actually think many of the, you know, most, most of the there's a lot of mow-mowing of social media companies by the right wing saying you are censoring us when in fact the evidence is the opposite. They're actually, you know, in fact, I just read Steve Levy's forthcoming book about Facebook. And, you know, there's a lot of evidence from inside Facebook that they were basically like in the 2016 election, they thought Hillary was going to win. So they spent a lot of time trying to appease the right wing. They go, why piss them off? It's not going to matter. So they actually, it's a matter of opinion, but there were opinions of people inside, uh, you know, on the inside who thought, yeah, we are basically appeasing the right wing. It wasn't sent, whereas the right wing is Saying, oh, you're censoring us. No, they're actually amplifying them. I think that the idea, we will get better at all this. I do think that is true. But I do think it is a, uh, it is a, a because it has become a subject of a, a kind of cyber warfare, uh, that's going to be hard. And we have a lot, uh, a long way to go before it gets better. And in fact, it may never get better. I, I don't know if you've read uh, Neil Stevenson's Fall. But it opens with this sort of great kind of like little section where they're really talking about people who, you know, this is massive disinformation campaign on Facebook and, and people just don't want to know the truth. 
Oh, not on Facebook, on the equivalent of, you know, social media. That sounds like reality. Yeah, but, you know, literally where there's this sort of fake nuclear explosion and people won't go to the town, like it's, you know, (laughs) (laughs) to see that it's still actually still there, you know. (laughs) And and there's a whole thing. It's just the willing desire of certain parties to believe certain things, you know, and and have non-consensual reality, you know, sort of like, anyway, whatever. That is is something that is, is problematic. I do have to say... If you have the perspective of history, you do realize these things can get so seriously out of control that they end. You, know, you do end up with the fall of a civilization. You know, there's a, a wonderful book called The Swerve, uh, which is really about the rediscovery of science in the Renaissance. But it, it starts with kind of like the, you know, this beautiful picture of the devotional literacy, literacy and knowledge in the Roman Empire and this sort of turning point where you know, this uh, you know, female Egyptian mathematician Hypatia is stoned to death for being smart, you know? And that's kind of, in, in some ways, in the, the telling of, of Greenblatt's book, that is the turning point of that leads to the Dark Ages, you know? And, you know, where, where basically there was a turning away from knowledge, and I think we have big parts of our society. You look at something like climate change where people are saying, you know, we don't want to believe the scientists. We want to believe. What we... And there are people who have their political or commercial interests uh, pushing that narrative. And then there's people who, who swallow it. And, and then we've been, you know, we, we see this sort of turning against expertise. And there's a lot of people playing with fire and there's huge issues at stake not just the politics, but look at the environment and you look at uh, where the future goes. Uh, Helping people to navigate this new landscape is, is really important. Tim O'Reilly, thanks for coming back on. Thank you. 